Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is Liz Murray, whose memoir traces her life as the child of drug-addicted parents to being a homeless teen and then winning a New York Times scholarship uh, to Harvard. Her memoir, Breaking Night, a memoir of forgiveness, survival, and my journey from homeless to Harvard, is a New York Times bestseller. Liz Murray writes that after years of truancy, sleeping on New York City streets, and shoplifting food to survive, she was emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. It wasn't until her mother's AIDS-related death that she woke up to how precious life is, which opened her heart and mind, inspiring her to transform her life. And she is founder and director of a company called Manifest Living, a New York-based company created to uh, share tools for individuals to transform their lives and create the authentic life they were intended to live. Liz Murray, pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, this, uh, of course, uh, story has received a lot of attention, and, and you've been uh, sort of on a whirlwind, I don't know, 10-year tour, essentially. I, I just I never expected for all of this to happen. You, know, you don't wake up one day going, I'm going to become the homeless to Harvard person. Um, but it just sort of happened, and this book has been something in my heart for some time now, and it was just something I kind of had to get out. Uh, and you've, uh, you've had some extraordinary experiences uh, following the, the publication of this memoir, uh, including, as you write in the epilogue, uh, speaking on the same bill with the Dalai Lama. It's been really crazy. Well, I mean, my friends uh, call me Forrest Gump lately because <laughs> I end up in all these kind of out-there situations, so they say I have no business of being there. But, um, you know, I think part of that comes from... Yeah, I grew up in a way where um, we went through a lot as a family, which everybody's about to hear about, and you get the gist, and my parents were on drugs, and it was a tough situation, and growing up that way, I thought we were the only ones. You know, I thought, you know, our family was the worst, and I had such a sense of shame, and then I found out that when I had the courage to share my secret, all these other people had things going on in their lives, and I quickly learned that really everybody has a story, and you know, people relate to a sense not necessarily of being homeless when they're a teenager, but I think anybody can relate to having adversity in their lives and really, you know, losing their spirit at some point and wanting to find it and find a way back to themselves. Well, I want to get into your story. Uh, maybe just before we do that, uh, your st- story is extraordinary, but as you found, there are others who, you know, experienced similar uh, things, but it's it's the decision you made and the fact that you did get out and, and accomplish things. Not everyone does. In fact, you write in the book that uh, some of your uh, homeless friends, um, you know, had the attitude that the, this is it. This is all it's ever going to be. Yeah. I mean, but I think that you don't need to be homeless to have that attitude. I think that really, you know, no matter where you are in life, who doesn't get disenchanted and cynical at some point and just sort of resign themselves? I think it's a human tendency. I think anything you can find in my story, it's personal, but it's universal because, you know, you can, who doesn't walk around through their day, walk through an airport and look how people are, you know, pushing into each other, you know, harried and all, um, you know, kind of nasty and confrontational. I think people just, you can like lose your sense of joy in life, no matter where you come from. And it takes sometimes an interruption or a reminder to bring you back to what's important. Let's talk a bit about your uh, your story, uh, and maybe a place to start is where you start in the in the first chapter, uh, of sort of a typical 
day or, or week or month in, in your family. Uh, your parents were addicted to drugs, and your mother had a, a disability check which would come. Um, and you write, your job as a young girl was to look for the postman. Yeah, yeah. We had a routine in our household, and <clears throat> excuse me. And really, what that came from, what was the remnants of a of a previous lifestyle that my parents had. They did the whole disco dancing partying lifestyle in the seventies in New York City, hard partying. And then you know they you know the eighties rolled around and they woke up. They had these two kids. That's me and my older sister Lisa. And the party was over. And this was the aftermath. And you know we were born when all their income was was this welfare check that came in on the first of every month because my mother was legally blind and everything in our household sort of surrounded this routine of receiving and cashing the check and what we would do with it. My earliest memories have a lot to do with, you know, finding my place in that. You know, I had a, a memory of myself when I was much younger where my parents were more, my mother was more engaged and really present with me, but over time, as they would cash these checks and spend them on drugs, they became so addicted that I quickly learned that the only way to connect with them was to find my place in what they did. So when I opened up Breaking Night, uh, I opened the book with, you know, really watching them cash their checks, looking out the window for the mailman to deliver that check on the first of the month, because he was sort of like you know, a celebrity in my neighborhood because everybody was on welfare. And the first of the month was a little bit like a ghetto holiday. We all got our checks, and then my parents cashed it. And the routine went that they would bring my sister and I to the drug spot, and they would get cocaine and heroin. And then we would go to the supermarket. It was just kind of a checklist. We get our groceries, just a few, maybe $35 worth of groceries. We go home. Lisa and I, we, my sister, we tear through the food, and then our parents go to the kitchen and they take out syringes out in the open and they get high. And this happens every month. And when the high comes down, of course, they get high again. And it goes on and on and on. It's like a train wreck. Maybe seven or eight days into the month, they run out of money and they run out of drugs. And certainly we ran out of food. And the question of the day was sort of always, gee, well, how do we get to the next first of the month? And that struggle really characterized a lot of our time and our years together. So how did you get to the next first of the month? The food would have run out, essentially. What, what did you do? Well, you know, we, we do what we could. Um, you know, I think well, w- the way that we got through had a lot to do with a certain mindset that I took on. I, I would watch my parents struggle and do things like my mother would sell the television to a neighbor for 5 or $10, and then she would get high with that money. Or you know, one time in the height of her desperation... After having sold my sister's winter coat, you know, she went into the freezer in our kitchen and she took out the frozen Thanksgiving turkey that the church had given us and she sold that to a neighbor. It's, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. You know, I, I watched that going on and I quickly got this idea in my mind. I realized now, I didn't know then, that life was about survival. Like I thought, oh, okay, this is what adults do, right? Like it, when I grow up, If I'm a good adult, I'm a good survivor. And in fact, I came to think that survival was the highest possibility for me in life. And, you know, I practiced it. So when my sister and I would get hungry, we would go up and down the stairs of the tenement building we lived in. It's like six stories tall. And we had really good neighbors. We grew up in the Bronx in New York City, but 
you know, it's still, uh, it's a little bit of a ghetto environment, bad neighborhood, but the neighbors were great. They fed us. We knocked on their doors when it was dinner time. And, you know, we could do that most days, but some days when we couldn't, we were just so hungry, we would eat ice cubes or chapstick and toothpaste. We, we just kept thinking if the next first of the month came, then everything would be all right. And, you know, it sort of creates that generational cycle where, you know, it's about government checks and really about nothing else. And in my heart, I just thought, again, you know, if I can manage a crisis, if I'm good at survival, and I was going to be the best I could be at that, never thinking that people actually thrive in life and do well, that would come later. And probably many others around you uh, were were sort of in that mode as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, in the Bronx, we, I really mean it when I say like the mailman was a local celebrity. He was like urban Santa Claus. You know, we, we loved him because he came and delivered the check. And it wasn't just my parents. It was really all of the neighbors. This is when, you know, crack was a big thing in the 80s in New York City. And there was just a ton of drug addiction. It's really like anywhere I looked, there wasn't really a single example of someone living a life that you would want to really model for a younger person. And, you know, it, I mean, I don't mean to make it sound all so sad either because I didn't know the difference. I didn't know the difference. And I just thought, okay, this is the way people are. That's just life. I, it was very matter-of-fact for me. And I think a lot of people are surprised to learn um, I didn't know that I would have such a reaction when people told this to me, but um, when when they would read the book and I would try to share and explain with people, you know, I actually, not knowing any different, I just felt like we were okay, and I loved my parents very much, and I felt that they loved me very much, and I felt lucky that I lived with both my parents when most kids didn't, and I felt like I just had a really loving home, and that was my experience of my upbringing. And I still feel that way. I love my parents very, very much, and I felt very loved growing up. They just happened to be addicted to drugs. Hmm. Maybe it was after the memoir came out then that uh, I'm sure you got reactions of, how could your parents do this? And and if, if you look at it especially, it is it is pretty appalling, isn't it, uh, doing drugs right in front of your kids and, and well, you so know, forth? Um, my pa- I, I'm one of those people who believes that addiction is a disease. And, you know, I didn't have this intellectual thing about it as a kid. It was like an instinct. Like, oh, look at mom and dad. They're taking out the syringes. They're getting high. Uh, my mom was schizophrenic, legally blind. They were, my mo- father was mentally ill. They're both drug addicted. I, I don't know how to put it other than just to say, to watch them so sick. I knew they weren't running off and being better parents to some other kids during the daytime and then coming back to take something out on us. Like, there wasn't a malice in it. I, they were sick. They were sick, and it was so blatantly obvious between my mother, like, hallucinating and hearing voices, and she's getting high. It wasn't about me or against me. You know, yeah, people read the book, they react. And at one time I was speaking at a conference, I will never forget, um, and there was a therapist. I I found out the whole room was filled with therapists because I was at a university. And afterwards, they told, you know, they're like, they're all looking and staring at me. And when I told them I'm not angry at my parents, many of them began to write something down at the same time, you know, and it's, <laughs> they're all coming up to me after and talking about denial and things. And I, I said, look, you know, it, it, there was one guy who had a bow tie. He was quoting me studies, telling me why I was angry. And I, and I just sir, you know, do you have a Ph.D.? You know, bless your heart, sir. You weren't there. 
you know, and nothing replaces the experience. And I was there. I was there when mom wasn't going to feed us a hot meal, but she hadn't had a hot meal in two or three days. She was starving and still sticking her arms with needles. And my dad, we needed a new winter coat. My dad had duct tape crumbling, you know, uh, holding his sneakers together because they were crumbling off of his feet. And I think the simplest way I know how to say it is that my parents just taught me that people can't give you what they don't have. And, you know, they, if you need a dollar but I only have a dime, I, I can't. People can't give you what they don't have. And what I took from that was, you know, I knew I was loved. I knew when my mom sat at the foot of my bed and she would tuck me in at night, she would kiss my face and she called me Lizzie. You know, Lizzie, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. I love my kids. And she'd go get high. My dad had been in a Ph.D. program um, for psychology at some point in his life and dropped out, not completed. He would take me on long walks and teach me everything he learned in his programs and tell me how much he loved me. I constantly felt loved, but I learned that people can't give you what they don't have. And if anything, the message I got was, okay, no one is going to hand me anything in this life. I need to find my way. And if there's something that I want, I have to create it. And there's not going to be a middleman. There's me and the world. And how am I going to create what I want in the world? And and that was the way that I grew up, which is, I think now that I'm older, I can look back and see that it was sort of the opposite of entitlement. And in a lot of ways, that became an asset to me. We're talking with Liz Murray. Uh, she's author of a memoir, New York Times bestseller, called Breaking Night, a memoir of forgiveness, survival, and my journey from homeless to Harvard. And her path to Harvard was indeed an unusual one, um, a child of drug-addicted parents, though loving parents, as she's been saying, uh, and uh, a period of homelessness, and uh, got herself into a... Uh, uh, kind of an uh, upper-crust uh, prep academy, and then uh, a scholarship to Harvard, and now uh, runs a company called uh, uh, Manifest Living, uh, trying to help people to transform their lives in, in the way that she was able to do. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me, uh, Liz Murray, a little bit about your parents. You, you write movingly um, uh, about uh, how your parents met, and uh, uh, you know it was, it was a love story. Your your parents uh, really took to each other. Um, your your father describes your mother then as a radiant, wild-looking woman with long, wavy black hair. I really took to her, and uh, your mother says that uh, your father was 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 a really sharp uh, man, very intelligent. Yeah, they were. You're just making me smile. That's all I'm like listening. And yeah, I I remember their stories about each other so vividly. Yeah, I, I wanted to. I didn't actually even know that I was writing a little bit of their love story when I started writing about them. But inevitably, I'm sure people listening right now, I, I always think there must be somebody out there who has a book inside them and they want to write it. And people, you know, you'll find if you sit and write about yourself, you're going to have to write about your parents and where they came from. And what was beautiful in this book um, was this opportunity to get to write about their story. And so my father, they came from very opposite backgrounds. He came from this Irish Catholic, um, sort of upper middle class environment on Long Island in New York. And his mother was able to provide for him and he went to some of the best schools and then got into a college in New York City and came in from Long Island and his whole life sort of went downhill because as a graduate student, he was you know, uh, he was brilliant, he was studious, but he also started using and then selling drugs. My mother came from the Bronx, and she grew up on the streets. 
she came up in a very abusive environment, very terribly abusive. And so she left home when she was just 13. And several years later, you know, she's in her early 20s, and she was at a party, and she was a heavy drug user by then. And my father actually sold my mother drugs at a party, and they started talking. And you know, he had come from a totally different background than her, but it's as though when they got together, their lives became parallel. You know, my mom sounded very um, impressed by my dad. She always said he was so smart, sharp as a tack. He, he would sit there and, you know, he was known, one of his famous things was to answer all the questions on Jeopardy correctly and kind of, he's just this brilliant guy. And my mom had all the street smarts and she was just a loving person and she was so wild and that attracted him. And he was, she kept saying he looked like a movie star. And they got together at this party in the 70s and late 70s and they stayed together and they began using, and using became their main thing. And my my father was involved with a scam that involved phony prescriptions and pills, and he was arrested uh, and put in federal prison. And right around the time that my dad was taken away, my mom found out she was pregnant with me. She was arrested as well. She got released, and she was heavily pregnant with me when she was done with the trial and all the things that happened. And then my father he went away for a bit and my first memories of him coming home weren't until I was about three years old. And so then, you know, then fast forward and it's the situation where they had lived this really high flying lifestyle that was reduced down to these welfare checks that we lived off of. And then of course you can only keep that up for so long before the floor falls out from under you. Something has to give, like you can't continue to go on that way. It's not sustainable. And eventually you know, uh, it caught up with them. Hmm. We'll uh, continue the story, of course. We're going to take a brief break now, and uh, much more to come with our guests following the break. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, welcoming students and alumni back to campus for homecoming week, September 28th through October 3rd. Information at usu.edu slash alumni. And the 23rd Annual Moab Music Festival, presenting Clarice Assad, plus Off the Cliff, Harlem Renaissance, and Classic to Contemporary Chamber Music through September 14th. Information at moabmusicfest.org. Hi, I'm Jill Deacon. Irfan Khan is a prolific actor. Even if you're not up on your Bollywood, perhaps you've seen him in Slumdog Millionaire, Spider-Man, Life of Pi. He joins me to talk about his new feature film, Guilty, and a career spanning continents. Irfan Khan, coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us Monday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Our guest for the hour today is Liz Murray, whose memoir traces her life as the child of drug-addicted parents to being a homeless teen and then winning a New York Times scholarship uh, to Harvard. Her memoir... Breaking Night, a memoir of forgiveness, survival, and my journey from homeless to Harvard, is a New York Times bestseller. And Jeannie in Paradise uh, joins the conversation. Jeannie, welcome to the program. Thank you. I have a question. My son has been dealing with addiction, and he's doing better now, but I see that he has kind of lost hopes and dreams, and 
and the ability to see anything better for himself. And I was wondering what your organization that you're now working with, how it, it helps. Um, well, first of all, I'm so sorry for what's happening with, you know, in your family. I'm just, I'm so sorry about that. And actually, unfortunately, my organization doesn't deal with anything related to um, addiction because, as you'll hear later, I, I think as we share the story and go on, I've never used drugs myself and I've never been in that myself. Um, my organization, New York City, is, uh, we actually encourage people to be drug-free when they come, and it's, we often get business leaders and students and um, people all walks of life, but not really necessarily from addiction, um, who are just highly motivated already and looking for tools to change their lives. But that being said, um, you know, for your family, I would, I'm not a professional that, um, you know, a counselor about people with addiction. I would absolutely seek professional, professional help and go by recommendations because the quality really varies. And, yeah. One thing I know that I can speak of, since you're the family member calling in, I can relate to you in the sense of Al-Anon having been very important. Um, I know this isn't a solution for your son, but for yourself. Um, Al-Anon, if you're, I don't know if you're familiar, uh, but for anyone listening who may not be, it's, it's the organization for people. There's AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, for people who have, you know, addictions. But then for family members, there are just sort of classic things that happen to us we don't even know are happening to us when we have someone we love who's addicted, and Al-Anon helps us process that. And, in fact, a lot of this book, uh, in Breaking Night, I wrote all about the relationships and, and how to deal with the addiction in your family. But what you can do is for yourself is to choose a responsible way to relate to what's happening. And Al-Anon and working on your own healing is a huge piece of that. And unfortunately, we just can't control other people's behavior, but you can take care of yourself and provide excellent resources for him, of course. You know, and again, I'm so sorry for what's happening. Well, I appreciate it, and he is doing much better. He's not using right now, but I, I can just see that there's not much hope for his future, although he is in school and, you know, he's doing good things. But, um, but I do appreciate so much uh, your story, and, um, and uh, I know... Hopefully, he'll find a way to find hope and spirit and motivation again. Well, one thing I can say just, you know, before you go, let, let me also say that whenever someone's going through something, and I've known this about myself and others, and they're not the first person going through it. And whenever I see someone going through something or it's myself, I always seek out where the resources for when this happens to people. And uh, community, surrounding him with a supportive community would really, there are other people who go through this and there are other people who have overcome it. Perhaps there's some kind of mentor you can link him with that understands where he's coming from, somebody who can model for him a better way of being. Right. Well, I appreciate so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling. All right. Thanks, Jeannie. Appreciate that. Uh, so moving forward with the story, and maybe the, you made reference to the fact that I had wondered about that. You never took drugs. Maybe that was a reaction to no. seeing your parents? Never a day in my life. Never a day in my life. I just, my mom used to kind of come out of the kitchen and, you know, I don't want to be too graphic with your listeners, but let's just say, you know, there were needles involved and blood spatter. And, you know, she was like very obviously high and would come out and she would come to the kitchen, look at me, say, Lizzie, sweetheart, you know, please don't ever do this. Look at me like this ruined my life. Don't you ever, you would break my heart. So many years later when, you know, I'm a teenager then and, my friends are all discovering drugs. You know, I had this 
graphic image in my mind. I would even sort of chuckle at the commercials that came on TV telling you not to do drugs because I thought, you know what, buddy? I already had the most graphic anti-drug campaign. (laughs) Thanks. And so when people would get high, you know, I would just excuse myself and I would go in the hallway, read a book, do something else. I could never be around it. To this day, I still can't. Uh, your your family was uh, certainly had many problems. You describe your parents as loving, doing the best they they can. Uh, later on, uh, you're 15 or 16. Your your family uh, breaks up. How did that happen? Well, I, I think HIV and AIDS were the beginning of the end. You know, for my family because my mom became diagnosed positive at a time when they don't have the medications they have now. And you, you know, for, frankly, I don't think she would have taken them. She just didn't at some point no longer had a will to live. And when she was diagnosed, she began living in and out of hospitals. And I ended up in a foster care situation because I was was just the worst student you could ever imagine. Like, I hated school, never wanted to go, and I, I was truant. My sister Lisa was a dedicated student, like, always doing the right thing, and I was just cutting school. So, and my dad could no longer afford the rent without my mother being there because she was in the hospital. So these were our situations. And the result was dad lost the apartment. He ended up in a shelter. Mom is pretty much living in the hospital between there and an old boyfriend's house. My sister was able to live at the boyfriend's house because she just complied with everything and was just sort of easy. I was the troublemaker. So I went off to foster care. And then when I got out, Um, And it was unfortunately, there's so many good places in foster care, I ended up in a bad one, and in a group home, rather. And pretty soon, I ended up living on the streets because when I got out of that placement, I had the wrong idea that there was no good place for you to go in foster care, and I didn't know that there were plenty of good places. So I I ran from that, and I ended up making some friends that were street kids, one girl named Sam who was living on the streets and I kind of burned all my bridges and while my mother was in the hospital and you know again without the medications they have now HIV became full-blown AIDS pretty quickly she had tuberculosis and I started the first phase of teen homelessness which is you know couch surfing (laughs) you start sleeping in all your friends houses and I had my buddy Sam with me so I thought oh we're fine you know I'll sleep at Bobby's house I'll sleep at Jamie's I I thought I had this plan (laughs) And then pretty soon, well, people stopped answering their doors. We'd go to sleep over our friends' houses, and they go, guys, you know, not tonight. And that happened enough, and we started sleeping outside. I didn't realize it was a big deal at first. I just thought, okay, I'm sleeping on the subway tonight. It's a fluke. You know, my dad's living in the shelter. Mom's in the hospital. I'm, I'm on the train, but you know what? Tomorrow I'll have a friend's house to sleep at. But then another night would come and another night outside in New York City. And that's actually where the title of the book comes from. Um, In the Bronx, we have a slang term. When you stay up all night until the sun rises, that's called breaking night. And I kept telling my friend Sam, you know, when we saw that first hint of sun and we'd been walking all night, oh, we broke night, we're breaking night. And she just, you know, Liz, we're homeless. She turned to me and I said, you know what, You you might be right. And And I guess when it came to naming the book, I could think of no better title than moving from darkness to light. So that's why it's called Breaking Night. But in fact, I did realize at some point, no, I'm, in fact, I'm 15 and I'm homeless in New York City. There are dangers, I would imagine, being being out on the streets. No, of course. But, you know, there's one thing that I've always been really pretty good at was finding people that I love that love me and, and making really great friends. And my friends 
have been and continue to be a huge support in my life. And you know, even if we couldn't sleep at their houses, what we would do is go, or their apartments rather, we'd go to the top. Like if you go to a building staircase, but if you walk to the very top before the roof, there's one blank empty landing, and we'd often sleep there. And they'd bring up, they'd sneak up sandwiches and blankets, or we'd ride on the train and. It's New York City. Everybody's always riding the train in the middle of the night, so we look like passengers. And you learn little tricks. We'd beg for change. I, I, if you saw a picture of me back then, <laughs> you know, I, I would not even recognize myself from today. Unrecognizable. I, my hair was dyed purple. I had piercings all over everything on my face. My clothes were all black and gothic. And what was eerie about it, you know, I think... A, maybe a much bigger danger than wondering what would happen on a particular night, because I was clever enough to find my way around that, was what was I doing to my life? You know, I, w- I was visiting my mom in the hospital, and that was tough. I love her so much, and she loves me so much. We just very, we were, it was tough. And there were two things I carried with me. One was my mother had given me this coin she got from NA, Narcotics Anonymous, years ago, and it had the serenity prayer on the back, and I had that with me, and then I had a picture of my mother when she was a teenager. It was the one thing that I was able to put in my journal before I ended up outside, and what was so eerie about that picture, and actually, if, if anyone, if you even go on Amazon or some internet site that sells the book, you can click and see the picture even in a sample, and you can look in my mother's eyes. It's the craziest thing because the picture is of her when she was homeless and she was a teenager in New York City. And it's very crumpled up in black and white. And my mom, I realized I was living her life. You know, I wasn't getting high, and that was the big, big difference. But in every other way, here I am, and I'm looking at this picture, and I'm sleeping in the stairwell. This is where she was hanging out. This is where she was partying when she was my age. And, you know, it, it was haunting. It was haunting in a big way. And I had this thing I told myself that I think is pretty common. I think people do this. I had all these plans in my head about going back to school and making a great life. And I kept telling myself, I'm going to do it later. I, you know, and I think anyone listening who's a procrastinator knows what I'm talking about, where you go, oh, yeah, I'll get, I'll get that job later. I'll go to school later. But eventually, you know, it becomes a lifestyle. And I even would tell myself, I'm going to visit mom later. I'll do everything later. And I think when you're living that way, no matter what your life looks like, if you're blessed enough, and sometimes it comes in a very painful way, life brings you an interruption and sort of shakes you and wakes you up and then lets you know that really time is precious, life is precious, and there's something that has to be done right now, right? There isn't really going to be a later. And unfortunately, that particular interruption in my own life came with my mother passing away. And we'll get into that uh, after we uh, take a uh, call. Another caller, Valerie. Uh, Valerie in Cedar City is our next caller. Welcome to the program. Hi, Valerie. Hello. Well, hi. I'm <laughs> amazed by your kindness you. and compassion. Oh, I um, love it. I'm kind of marveling at how you became this way. I mean, it seems like it's almost a a, a gift of of your of your personality. Um, um, pardon me, I might get a little emotional. Um, You have this amazing life, you, and I wonder, is it it the love of your parents that that has given you this, or is it it an aspect of your own personality? You know, I think... Amazed. You know, if I had to 
you know, we can never really know. when you, We always try to attribute how something became the way it was, and we never really know. But my deep, heartfelt instinct is that it was my parents' love. Real simple, nothing complicated about it. And I don't know if I was born that way. I just... I, I can't, you know, I hear it like, let me say it this way. I feel that their their love was so obvious. And when you say kindness, I, you know, I don't know because, you know, uh, and this is a very quick um, side mention, but I think it speaks to what you're asking. I'll give you a very, very quick example. Um, I had an experience one time where my mom stole $5 from me when I was maybe, you know, just I was a kid. I was really young. And people would say, aren't you angry? She took money, she got high, or she went out to buy drugs to get high with the money, right? And she, you know, I knew she went out, and my sister was always so angry at her. And so I remember trying to act like my sister and yell at my mom when she came home with the drugs. She came home with the drugs, and I started shouting at her, something that I never did. And she put the needles across the table. She was about to get high. Well, I yelled some things at her that I don't even want to repeat and that were not nice. She snatched up the drugs, stormed away down the hall, went to the bathroom, and I followed her and I continued to shout because I thought she was going to shut the door and get high without me bothering her, but I was wrong. I looked at her and she had actually been crying. She took her drugs and flushed them down the toilet. And I can't tell you when someone's addicted to drugs, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. She flushed them down the toilet, did not get high, and I realized she was crying. And she said to me, Lizzie, sweetheart, I'm not a monster. I just can't stop, sweetheart. Please, you know, forgive me. Forgive me. You know, I love you. And mm. we ended up on the bathroom floor. We were crying together, hugging each other. And again, you know, all I know how to say is people can't give you what they don't have. I feel like my life taught me that. My parents taught me that. And their love was the core of that message. Thanks, Valerie, for the call. Thank, Thank you. you. What a yeah. profound gift your story is. I really appreciate it. Mm. Thank you so much for calling, Valerie. You have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Valerie. Uh, I want to pick up, uh, you were talking about uh, time when uh, the, that you say happens in, in some people's lives when you know you can't procrastinate a change that you want to make. For in your case, that was the death of your mother. And you write very movingly uh, about that and, and about her her burial, um, a, a, a pine box and a and misspelled name, uh, some of your friends there with you. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us about uh, just a surreal experience that maybe was a part of all of this. You were in a motel room yeah. uh, with uh, with your friend Carlos, who had become your boyfriend, and then uh, tragically uh, you discovered he, he had uh, become addicted to drugs and, in fact, become a drug dealer. Um, and you saw on television there was a, a young girl who had who had been killed. You realize that's three doors down or something for in the same motel yeah. room. Yeah, my, well, I, you know, I was making the best decisions at the time, right? So I end up 16 years old, and, you know, my mom, you know, had passed away. And at the time she passed away, we buried her the day after Christmas. It was a very difficult time. You know, and just as you mentioned, she had that kind of pauper's funeral with the pine box. And I was living in some kind of a haze. My My boyfriend at the time was older than me. He was a drug dealer he was in a gang it was a mess right and i'm and i'm living in this motel because he had a little bit of money not much at all and he was becoming abusive and he was scaring me and i was it was the side of the highway i'll never forget holiday motel new england uh 
throughway exit 13, <laughs> like I'll never forget. I was living in this dingy motel, and he would leave some nights and not come back, and I was by myself. I didn't have enough money. I actually could not make a phone call. And there were like two little channels on the TV and I'd sit there all night right after having buried my mom and all these thoughts would come back to me and it was haunting. And, you know, I'm watching the news by myself one night and I'm like, literally the only food I have is we might've eaten something during the day and then I save it all day or I eat out of the garbage of the hotel. Like I'm, I'm really in a desperate situation and I watch TV and I see on the news that this woman has been killed in a motel. It was the most surreal thing, and I'm thinking, that looks like my motel. And I lifted the curtain, and there's a news reporter, and it was like having two televisions, because one was on the TV and one was her right out the window. And, in fact, it was the motel that I was in, which I'm, I now know is this big hotbed for drugs, and I, I didn't know all that back then. I didn't know where I was. And it was tragic. She was a mother. She had been killed by her boyfriend, who was abusing her, and it was a few doors down. He stabbed her and killed her, and there was something about watching that happen. And even though I'd been sitting there and tolerating so much and just waiting and telling myself, I'll do it later, I got out of there so fast. I just realized, is this where I am in life? It was a barometer of where I was in my life. And it was so tragic to see what happened to her. I was able to make a collect phone call and reach a friend. And I was taken to... Um, I they paid for a taxi and I took all everything I owned in a garbage bag and I went to the neighborhood in the Bronx that I had come from not too far away. I began sleeping on my friend's couches. I ran away from that relationship. Soon after, I ended up back in school. And a big piece of that really, you know, I, when I buried my mom and when we, you know, we talk about kind of that realization that can happen in life, um, Again, I was someone who kept telling myself I would get to all the important things in my life later. <laughs> and, you know, here, here I was burying my mom. And what I realized at that time is, like, she used to sit at the foot of my bed and share her dreams with me. And she used to tell me she would do them later. She was going to get sober later. Life was going to get better later. And here I was telling myself later, and I had this gift happen where I realized that I was really living as part of a cycle. You know, I went back after I buried my mom to my friends' houses, and the the awareness that my mother gave me was immediate, and it was permanent, and it was evident in the moments that I saw my friends. I sat on my friend's couch, and there were 10 or 11 of us, and we're all like, we think we're so cool, we're punk rock, and we have gothic clothes, and we're pierced in different colored hair, and what, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's cool, but we had an attitude that went with it. And I sat with my friends in the living room, and I saw that change right then and there. And I saw it because a friend of mine was talking about his mom. He was complaining. She had burnt his pork chops for dinner, and he was complaining. I buried my mom, right? And I'm listening to him complain about his mom burning his dinner. Then my other friend said something like, um, you know, oh, that's just like my boss. I, my boss never listens. I hate my boss. So they're complaining. My other, my other friend's complaining about their teacher. My other friend dropped out of school. And they're going on and on and on. And it's kind of like having that friend. You know that friend that everybody has that you call them, and whenever you call them, they're always having a bad day? <laughs> you know, how are you? Oh, I'm hanging in there. It's like we were all so negative, right? And I'm sitting there, and I could no longer stand the sound of all this complaining. When I, it dawned on me that this is really what I sound like, I complain that much. And... What I got at that moment, which changed my life forever, was just I thought of my mom in this pine box, which was horrific to think about, 
this person I loved. And I looked at my friends complaining, and then I looked at myself, and the simplest thing came to me was just that I shifted from sort of I stopped counting all the things I didn't have, and I began just being okay with the things I did have, like having that be enough, being grateful for those. You know, and I, you know, I know that sounds you know, trite, but seriously, there comes a point in your life where you can really, you can do one of two things. You can either resent everything or you can just be grateful for what you have. You know, it's like resentment or gratitude. And I'm looking at my friends and I'm like, wow, thank God I have them. I love them so much. You know, look at me. I have two hands. I have two feet. I'm healthy. There's free high school education. I can just get on the train. And suddenly all these things that seemed so heavy before became very petty. And you know, I, I let go complaining all the things I didn't have, and I stepped into being grateful for what I did have. And when I did that, and I started looking at what I did have, it's amazing how gratitude will make you resourceful. Because I'm not paying attention to all that other stuff. I'm, I'm not even focusing on it anymore. So all of a sudden, it's just like I go into this problem-solving mode. Okay, well, I guess I can just make a list of high schools, and I can go to high school. You know, <laughs> And, you know, it was hanging out with my friends in those weeks, and getting that and understanding that and having their love and their support, I started knocking on some doors and I went back to school so fast. So, And you got into a, a pretty upscale school, the Humanities Preparatory Academy in, in Manhattan. How did that happen? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell them you called it upscale. They'll be very flattered. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> um, not? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's not, it's not what you would consider necessarily a fancy place, but I will tell you that I, it, w- it was the richest place I could have ended up for who those teachers are and for what that school stands for. I ended up at a place called Humanities Preparatory Academy in New York City, which is like a revolutionary school. I had been, uh, I failed everything. <laughs> I was the same age as someone who was graduating when I was beginning high school, and every door I knocked on turned me down, every place. And then I ended up at Humanities Prep, and I'd never really had the experience of someone listening, of someone really caring what I was saying. And this particular school, they didn't believe in overcrowding. They limited their student body to 150 students. They listened to you when you spoke. They had a very open-minded approach. Their principles were, you know, diversity, humanity. They, I mean, it was... So I can't say enough about how fantastic the school was. And in Breaking Night, I actually made sure that I took the time to write a chapter about how they founded the school, what the philosophy was. Because even reading this book for, for educators, for anybody who works with youth, you know, it's sort of like a case study in what doesn't work and then what does work. And I was fortunate enough to have this epiphany in my life that there really was no later. I had to do something now with my life. And after many rejections... I ended up at the doorstep of Humanities Prep, and they accepted me. And, uh, of course, the next step, you know, is, is skipping a bit for uh, time's sake on the program here, uh, is some wonderful experiences at Humanities Prep. Uh, when did you, it, was there a time before you uh, uh, entered this essay contest for a scholarship to Harvard? Was there a time before that that you thought, well, I could maybe get into Harvard? No, I mean, not, not right then and there, because Harvard wasn't on my mind, although I did have a sense of anything being possible that started happening. It wasn't Harvard, and, and again, I hope nobody thinks that anything I'm really talking about is specifically about homeless or specifically about Harvard, but I, I got into this mindset of possibility, and what I mean by that is, you know, here I am going to school, and I, I did not tell anyone I was homeless. That was my secret. I was sleeping at my friends' houses and sleeping in hallways and on the subway and getting my homework done wherever I could, and I had this big secret. 
But what I learned at that time that really changed everything, you know, once again, I just kept having these light bulbs go off, was at some point I had become such a great student, and it was so not like me, right? And I had these great grades. I was taken on a field trip with a few of the students at some point. And again, nobody knows I'm homeless, but all my belongings are in my backpack. The field trip was to Boston. And we went to Boston because the teacher said, we want to take the top 10 students. You know, we want to reward them. They work so hard. And I got to go on this trip. And we did a lot of things that were really fun. I had never been anywhere. I thought Amtrak was moving up in life. I'd never, you know, I'd never seen anything. So eventually they take us to something that even up the ante, they took us to Harvard Yard. And we walked through Harvard Yard, and the, the mission was to get a picture in front of the John Harvard statue for the yearbook. That was the only reason we were there. And as I'm walking through Harvard Yard, I'm kind of going, oh, you know, these students are so great. And, you know, this is so wonderful. And my teacher, who is such a wonderful teacher, who I write about extensively in the book, Perry, he leaned over to me and said, you know, Liz, you should apply to Harvard. It would be a reach, but it's not impossible, is what he said to me. And this is what I mean by the mindset of possibility. I think immediately I started going, oh, yeah, but that's not going to work. You know, immediately, you know, when you have a great idea for yourself, some dream or ambition, you immediately go, yeah, but, and you give yourself all the reasons it won't work. (laughs) That happened to me for a moment. But then I just shifted and said to myself, well, what if I applied? Like, what if I got in? It's unlikely, but it's possible. It's unlikely, but it's possible. And I allowed myself to stay in the possibility instead of the, the doubt. And I dropped the application. At the same time, I, I found out about the scholarship you referred to from the New York Times. And because I, I, when I found out how much tuition was, I almost fell on the floor. I didn't have enough for a turkey sandwich, so I wasn't going to be paying tuition at Harvard. Uh, so I went ahead and applied for scholarships. This one from the New York Times, the criteria, someone told me, Liz, that's called a God wink. Um, it was, please attach a brief autobiographical essay outlining any obstacles you've overcome in your life. And I remember thinking, well, you know, who planted this? This is the most unbelievable scholarship from the New York Times. And I applied for it, and much to my surprise, like, you know, I won. And and I guess if I, you know, I know we're running low on time, but, I like, if there are thoughts just to leave people with towards the end, I, you know, I didn't know this stuff was supposed to be hard. I came from a place where I didn't know about any of this, so I didn't have people around to scare me. <laughs> no one said to me, the New York Times is impossible. I didn't know what the New York Times was. It was a heavy newspaper people in suits read on the train. I didn't know what it was. And I think that people are always really quick to tell you what you can and cannot do. And in my experience, what I found is really absolutely nobody knows what's possible until they're already doing it. That's how you find out what's possible. Mm. And really, a lot of this was learning by doing and really being able to let go of that doubt and just live into that possibility. You have you have lived on in the survival mode and, and lived in extreme uh, circumstances that many of us have not, and then uh, seen some success. Uh, I'm sure you talk a bit about this at the uh, uh, the workshops that you give. Um, of course, an important question we all ask ourselves: What are the most important things in life? Oh, you know, I think that's a very personal. What makes an extraordinary life is personal to each person. You know, and. I can't say that for someone else, but what I can say is that I think people already know, like, I'm not saying anything people don't already know, and I think one thing, and when I do work with people in my workshops, it's sort of around 
kind of giving them an experience of that interruption, that wake-up call, because I think that we just get a little bit complacent in life. We like to live in our comfort zones. We like to do what's familiar to us. And we get sometimes in a little bit of a rut. And even if you're a successful person, like I work with CEOs now, I work with people as sales teams and training them, and I I work with people from all different walks of life. And no matter how successful someone looks on the outside, when people come, their lives are great. We're not fixing anything that's broken. People are fine. But they often will come up to me and confide in me. You know, there's there's this thing I want to do. (laughs) They come up and will say, you know, I, I really want a very fulfilling relationship. Or I have a book I'm meant to write. Or some people say, I'm so successful, I spend no time with my children. I, I want to really show up in life. I want to be a more loving person. And I think that we have these things that rest on our hearts that we just know we're called. It's a calling to do something. Unfortunately, life is busy. Then you go on your Blackberry, you, you know, you get busy, you do whatever. But when you put your head down on the pillow at night, something calls to you. My workshops and my work with people now are about that. And it's about bringing that to the forefront and leading with your heart and really making your life about those things that you know are extraordinary. And my own person, and I can only speak for myself, what that looks like for me is, you know, having a beautiful family, which I do now, um, having my life filled with people that I love and I love them, doing something meaningful that opens up possibilities for other people. And part of that is uh, there's an organization that helped me in New York City when I was homeless called The Door. And I'm actually working with a team of people there. I went back, and I'm on the board now, and we're opening up a high school for homeless teenagers in New York City this August, making my life about something. And it'll be called Broom Street Academy, and you can read about it at broomstreetacademy.org, anyone interested. And it'll service homeless and foster youth. I want to make sure that I open up possibilities for other people. So whether it's, you know, working with professionals through workshops, which is one part of my life, or it's this building this high school with these wonderful people or having family around me, I just want to make sure that there are beautiful moments with people I love and that other people get the opportunity to have their shot as well. We're talking with Liz Murray. She's author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Breaking Night, a memoir of forgiveness, survival, and my journey from homeless to Harvard. Uh, the website for her uh, company, which gives those workshops we've been talking about, manifestliving.com, or you can find that as well, I believe, at uh, homelesstoharvard.com. And uh, uh, I just wanted to, uh, we just have about a minute left. I don't have time to go into details here, but uh, people may be curious uh, about what, what happened to your father. You did have some good years with him. Uh, he, he, he became sober at the end of his life, right? And you had some, some nice he years with him. He became sober. And he was living in a shelter at some point. And when I got my first job and I got an apartment, I went to the shelter and I was like, Dad, get your bags. You know, and we moved after years estranged from each other. We moved back in together a few weeks before he died. Um, we had a wonderful chapter when he was sober and that opened up the possibility for us living together again. Um, yeah, you know, he asked me if I was angry about anything. I said, let's let it go. Let's be here now with each other. Before he passed away, he wrote me a birthday card, and inside it, he wrote, Lizzie, I left my dreams behind a long time ago, but I know now they're safe with you. And he passed away a few weeks later, and I have that card still. He goes on to say, 
thank you for forgiving me. It made us a family again. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. Well, yeah. we are out of time. I should say your sister Lisa is uh, doing successful. Well. She's a teaches... teacher in New York City, yeah. and she's doing very well. And as you said, anyone, if you want to, anybody interested in a workshop wants to come out to New York City, we have one coming up and really soon. Just write to me at homelesstoharvard.com. I check it every day. would love to hear from anyone. Wonderful. HomelessToHarvard.com. And the company's uh, name is uh, Manifest Living. Uh, and Liz Murray's who we've been talking to. Again, Breaking Night is the book, A Memoir of Forgiveness, Survival, and My Journey from Homeless to Harvard. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, Liz Murray. It's been so great. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Though Utah is the second most arid state in the country, when it comes to rivers, the Beehive State abounds in treasures. From the Green River that flows through Dinosaur National Monument in the northeastern corner of the state, to the Colorado that crosses the southern border, heading into Grand Canyon National Park, the choices for paddlers are incredible. Drift the green through the gates of the door, and you'll pass through a rift in the winter range. Chance spotting bighorn sheep grazing along the shore, and enjoy solitude hard to find these days. Or you might choose the Yampa River that flows 46 miles through Dinosaur National Monument before joining into the Green River. This is the last major tributary to the Colorado watershed that remains undammed. As such, it offers an experience and incredible sandstone scenery that other rivers can't. But if you only have two or three days, a Utah gem not to be overlooked is the stretch of the Colorado that flows through Cataract Canyon in Canyonlands National Park. Roller coaster wave trains, holes that could swallow Volkswagens, scenery that takes your breath away. Those are just three aspects to floating the Colorado River through the Cataract Canyon. Since the first white men descended this stretch, John Wesley Powell and crew back in 1869, the river has been hallowed water for rafters and paddlers in search of white water. Ed Abbey called this landscape one of the sweetest, brightest, grandest, and loneliest of primitive regions still remaining in our America. During breaks between the frothing waves, you come to understand why. Calm stretches that interrupt the wave trains let you relax, listen to the canyon wrens, and admire the red rock formations rising above you. This trip is not for everybody, however. The minimum age with commercial outfitters typically is 10 to 12. Why? Look at the names of the rapids. There's Capsize, Big Drop, Satan's Gut. They all can merit a Class 5 rating. Justification enough for the roller coaster analogy. Fortunately, river time, as they say, is not deducted from your lifetime. In Cataract Canyon, there is time enough to wander side canyons where you might spot cliff dwellings and stories the ancients wrote on cliff faces. Back in camp, Relax around the campfire as day eases into night, reliving the day's highlights and looking forward to the next morning's return to the Colorado's currents. For Wild About Utah, this is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org.
This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah. Today on Utah Public Radio, time now 10 o'clock.